Hello, and welcome to the 3D Meetup podcast. For this episode, we're chatting with Pete McNally. Pete's been in the industry for over 12 years. He's worked in animation and games, but he spent the majority of his professional career as a 3D generalist with the Emmy award-winning technology company, Havoc. Pete has a passion for photogrammetry and material creation. Alongside his impressive collection of personal projects, he's working closely with and has authored tutorials for the AI texturing company, Artematics. We actually spend the majority of this episode chatting about material creation and photogrammetry. I was surprised at just how accessible they are. We talk about the hardware, what Pete uses and how he uses it. We cover the different softwares he works in, their strengths and limitations, and he shares some tips and tricks as he walks us through his workflow. We talk about Artematics, and he gets into some of the details of what it does, as well as the impact it's had on his creative work. I learned a lot from Pete this episode. He's knowledgeable, enthusiastic, and he's very easy to listen to. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'll see you on the other side. So I'm uh, here with Pete McNally. First of all, I just want to say thanks very much for joining us, Pete. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I guess we'll, we'll just jump straight in. Do you want to tell us uh, how you got into 3D? Sure. I think uh, for me, originally, it was, um, it was I suppose, it was part computer games and it was part sort of movie uh, visual effects. You know, I always used to love watching them. The movie magic shows on TV where they'd show a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. And then when DVDs started, you know, being bundled with uh, commentaries and uh, little featurettes, I used to love all that stuff. So um, I went to I went to London, actually, to study um, media special effects. It was a new course at the time. It was a, a, um, a degree course. And um, I, I thought it would lead to that sort of work, the sort of uh, 3D work for, for games or for behind the scenes type of stuff. Um, and I studied that for about a year, and but it, it sort of became clear over time that it was geared more towards practical special effects, like for, for theater and, uh, you know, prosthetics and, and things like that. So um, I got a bit disillusioned with that, and I ended up coming back to Dublin to study in uh, Ballyfermis, where I studied um, 3D modeling and 3D, 3D computer animation and 3D modeling, I think the course is called. Um, and uh, I repeated second year of that course. So I was over there for about three years. And then I was hired on the industry open day uh, of my, my would have been my third year there. Um, and then through that, I got my first job, which was as a character artist stroke animator in a startup company uh, in Donegal, in Muff in Donegal, uh, called, uh, called Torque Interactive. Um, and that was my first sort of break in the industry. Can I ask you, what, what were you working in then? Was it Max or Maya or...? It was Max, and I've I've been pretty much working in Max ever since. To be honest with you, okay. um, it's one of those things that you know I learned it in college, um, and you know although we've delved into little bits of Maya and little bit of bits of soft image and, and things like that, uh, depending on um, depending on the customers that we have in our in our current job, it's been pretty much three D Studio Max all the way. So what happened then after that? How long were you at that company? And so all in all, so it was sort of. The, the company went through stages. It was a startup. And the first thing we were trying to do was to make a game engine. So mm-hmm. um, to make a game engine and to sell a game engine in those days, um, you we were writing it from scratch. And this is if you have to sort of cast your mind back to Doom 3 era. So um, corridor-based shooters, uh, nice-looking metals and specular. Normal maps had just been um, sort of proved out for, for real-time use and games. Um, inky black, stencil shadows, um, really low poly. Um, 
So we were making an engine to run like that. But, you know, it soon became apparent that um, now this was before like Unity and UE4 and even UE3. So back then, unless you wanted to use something that was, you know, um, sort of uh, low down on the on the on the features chain, um, you really had to stump up money to pay for an engine. So you were looking at, you know, possibly six figures uh, before your team got got working on a game just to license an engine. Um, so, uh, it soon became apparent anyway, if we were going to try and hawk our engine, we were going to need good, compelling content to go with it. So we sort of swung back and forth between, um, developing features for the engine and developing demos that would show off those features, so to speak. So, um, we put together a couple of, uh, different demos. We worked on, I think the first 64 bit, uh, program for, uh, AMD processors. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um. It was. It's probably still up on the internet. Actually, it's it's called Dreadnought, um, and uh, it's from about two thousand and four, I'd say. But I'm sure you could track it down. It's probably still up there somewhere. Um, and yeah, so I did character art on that. But after about eighteen months at uh, at Torque, I got promoted to lead artist. Um, and then I saw that's when I started uh, feeling out uh, the other areas of game art that I typically would have ignored. So I was I was really just a modeling. A modeler, I guess. So I'd model characters. I'd do like a high-res version. I'd do the low-res version. I'd do the unwrapping, and I'd bake out the normal maps and then hand it off to a texture artist. So um, I had to sort of branch out. I was forced, I guess, to, to branch out, um, far out of my comfort zone. But that led to you know an interest in texturing and sculpting and materials and, and pretty much everything. You know, In a small company like that, you have to wear a lot of hats. Everybody has to muck in. And if there's something that needs doing and it's not in anybody's particular uh, expertise, you have to just sort of muck in, baptism of fire, learn it as you go and try and come up with something decent. Yeah. So, do, I, do you think, sorry, do you think that's kind of stood to you? That oh, undoubtedly. Of undoubtedly. And while I look back at it and think of the, you know, uh, sometimes daily discomfort, uh, you know, feeling totally overwhelmed and uh, out of my depth. Um, it undoubtedly um, was was of benefit to me. It wasn't a pleasant way to learn, but it was a uh, it was a, a useful way to learn because some of the things that it exposed me to, uh, in terms of you know materials and textures and and even you know optimization for games um, have have stood me. You know I wouldn't be where I am today um, working with Havoc. I think if I hadn't have uh, if it wasn't for those early years. Yeah. So it was about. Um, let me see. Uh, I was there for about five years, all in all, and and after a certain amount of time, um, it became clear that in order to keep going, keep everybody getting paid, that we could possibly open a second studio that would exclusively uh, be a game development studio. Uh, so one one studio would work on the tech, and the other studio would work on on uh, on the game. And we were going to use the proximity uh, where we were in, in in Northern Ireland. Our location was right on the Donegal and Derry border, so it was possible then to get you know you could get grants for things like creating tech jobs in a rural area, or you could get grants for promoting cross border cooperation. Um, so like the Department of Enterprise Trade and Investment in in Northern Ireland, they'd be like they'd be like Enterprise Ireland here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, we were able to tap them for for grants and, and for money to to develop uh, a studio in the north in Derry, while the tech was largely still being developed in Donegal just across the border. Um, so yeah, we worked on a couple of extra demos, and those demos ended up sort of morphing into um, a released game. Um, it was after I left the studio um, that the game was released. It was called Dogfighter, and it did pretty well on the indie charts. Uh, on Steam when it was released, it was sort of like a uh, sort of I think it was described as Quake 
in biplanes, if that makes any sense. So it, was, it wasn't a flight sim by any stretch of the imagination. It was a, a super arcadey, um, instant pick up and play, uh, deathmatch in yeah. planes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, um, so that was, that was Torque. And then, um, around that, I worked with them until about 2007, 2008. And then I moved back to Dublin. Uh, and I was looking for work down here and there was a couple of things. There was a lot of work going at the time, 2007, sort of boom time, a lot of work going in um, architectural visualization. Uh, it seemed like these places where there was just so, so much construction going on. It seemed like these places were just just opening every week. And, you know, when the bottom fell out of the construction uh, boom here as well, they, they closed almost as quickly. Um so uh, I ended up, I got a job. I interviewed in Brown Bag actually for a, uh, a job as a character artist. And uh, I went over and I did the interview and um, I don't think it went that well, to be honest with you. Uh, I had a portfolio of, of low poly, uh, quite juvenile, typical game stuff, you know, monsters with, uh, you know, chainsaws for hands and guys with night vision goggles and, you know, explosions, with, you know, ragdolls flying around and stuff. Um, and it was actually for a, a preschoolers show that they were hiring. So and all my stuff was super low poly. Like back then we were making characters, you know, with uh, with five fingers in, like, I think, 1,200 triangles. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty lean. So, but, uh, so that didn't, I didn't get that, but I got a call back two weeks later um, to say that they were looking for a 3D supervisor for their commercials department. And because of the, the generalist um, sort of uh, background that I had just from being exposed to all these different areas back in Torque, um, I might be a good, um, a good uh, candidate for the job. So I got that job and I started working in brown bag in commercials. Oh, nice. And how long were you there then? I was there for less than a year, as it turned out. Now, it was, it was great. They had just opened the, the studio in Smithfield. And I had never worked with so many artists and animators before. It was like a building full of artists and animators. And it was awesome. Uh, and everything was brand new. And it was, it was really, you know, it was a really cool space. And Smithfield was developing. But um, I was there for less than a year. And the reason I left, and it was hard to leave because uh, I was happy there. And uh, I was enjoying the work as well. There was a lot of variety in it uh, in the commercials department. But um, somebody emailed me one day. I can't even remember who it was, but they said, um, Havoc, uh, also based in Dublin, are looking for an artist. And this was like the first time they'd hired for an artist, I think, in eight years or something. And they said, you know, would you think of throwing in your hat? And I said, well, I, you know, I've just got a hair and brown bag and I'm, um, I'm quite happy here. So, I, you know, I probably wouldn't. And then somebody else texted me, I think, and said, oh, did you see Havoc are looking for an artist? And I said, yeah, I know somebody else told me. And then anyway, it, three, three times it sort of crossed my path within a week. And I said, you know, the, the game stuff is what I really love, the, the game art. Maybe I'll just drop in a CV and see, um, and see what happens. So I did, uh, and I did the interview, and I did an art test and um, spent a day in the office. And uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, I was told I had the job, um, and I've been there ever since. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nearly 11 years, I think it is. Wow. You yeah. obviously enjoy it then. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great place to work. It's a great place. It's the best job I've ever had. Um, it is a, it's a great place to work. It's great tech, great people, very smart people. Um, the work is often fun. It's, uh, always challenging. Um, and like, like that, I get to, um, I get to do a bunch of different stuff as well. I get to do, I get to really be a, a generalist and, uh, and do a lot of different things. So, so somewhat similar to your first job then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm a bit more comfortable about it now. Yeah. yeah you can practice makes perfect, right? <laughs> So do you find a lot of time then when you're in Havoc, do you find time for your own stuff, your own personal projects? So um, a lot of the stuff I work at in Havoc is um, 
is secret. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it'd be under NDA and stuff. So I, a lot of the stuff that I work on, uh, most people don't get to see. Uh, which is which is unfortunate sometimes, um, but uh, partly because of that and, and partly for other reasons, um, I I started to, to you know to carve out time uh, to make my own stuff um, and to try and um, just uh, just just work for myself instead of always working for somebody else for stuff that never get 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 seen and and part of the other part of of, of that was that I had a hard drive like a, a big old brick of a removable hard drive that had a bunch of my older stuff, my older work on it uh, from the torque days. And um, that failed. It, it, uh, it, it, it went kaput one day and I thought oh. all the work that was on there had been lost. Now, most of the stuff on it, nobody had ever seen. They were test renders and they were, you know, experiments and just things that I'd saved off. And, and I thought, God, it would be a shame to have lost that anyway. And to think that, you know, there was a nearly, you know, a couple of hundred gigs worth of stuff there that nobody will ever see. So there was, for, there was, um, there was the hard drive failure, and there was the the uh, the needs or the want to create my own stuff, as well as uh, at the time I was playing a lot of um, Battlefield, a lot of Battle, Battlefield Bad Company too, yeah, and yeah, uh, nice. I, yeah, still still my favorite Battlefield game. I, I haven't really played any. The servers are pretty empty these days, unfortunately, but uh, I still go back to look at the maps and remember them fondly. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I was playing it on Steam, you know, and. Um, mm-hmm. I logged in one day and it said that the total hours that I'd spent on it were like in the thousands. And that sort of frightened me and shocked me a little bit. And I thought, Jesus, if I had, I'm always saying that I don't have time to work on stuff, but if I'd taken, if I'd spent a couple of thousand hours on something, uh, what could I have created with that time? You know, I felt super guilty and I felt right. Okay. I've got to do something. And that's one of the reasons I started blogging. So I started off blogging with, um, uh, some of the stuff, some of the older stuff from the hard drive that had been uh, lost, the, the guys in work were able to recover it for me. Oh, nice. um, so I got the, some of that stuff back. So I put the, the, the better parts of it uh, on the blog and then I just started to try and uh, even once a month, sometimes more than once a month, just to find something that would interest me that I could spend a couple of hours on a Saturday uh, messing about with. And if it was worth sharing then or if I thought somebody could learn from uh, what I learned, I would I would put it on the blog. So it was mostly texture stuff then, or was it? What was it in the early days? It was it was bits of everything, you know. Um, it was yeah, it was, some of it was was old stuff that I went back to um, that I thought, you know, this is from four years ago. If I give this some love, it could probably, you know, just improve it a little bit, or you know, something I ran out of time on maybe that I thought I could um, that I could I thought I could maybe um, improve on. And then it's sort of uh, I did like in that time I've done, you know, I've experimented with three D printing with uh, photogrammetry, with um, different renderers, different styles, uh, just anything that interests me that I think, you know, is, is worth sharing, I'll stick it up there. So it's it's quite stream of consciousness sometimes. It's, um, you know, one post will be completely unrelated to whatever was going on before. But, but that's sort of, that's sort of, it's partly intentional because, you know, because it's my own stuff, I'm not tied to deadlines and I'm not tied to finishing anything. If I get bored and I can leave it and jump onto something else, you know, wherever my my mind might take me that particular. And it comes down to the amount of time you have as well. You know, it's uh, I don't have time really these days to get stuck into something that's going to take hours and hours over weeks and months. So it's more about quick fixes now. What can I get done in a couple of hours and maybe get finished in a couple of hours after that and um, and share out, you know, so. 
you are finishing stuff. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, myself included, will start something and then get bored and never put it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I am finishing stuff, but that's why I think most of the output that I share these days tends to be um, sort of materials and shader work. It's because I know that if I have, you know, a block of, you know, between two and four hours free, I can maybe do something from scratch. And after those four hours, have something that, you know, you can present nicely, nicely rendered or something like that. Um, there's plenty of stuff, believe me. I have folders and folders and folders of ideas and stuff that will never see the light of day uh, that I just have abandoned because I just, I, you know, I can't face that. I just can't face that commitment, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I shouldn't say, but I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, <laughs> talking about the, the photogrammetry, um, would you mind talking us through maybe one of your projects that you, you, you showed us at the meetup, you showed us the scan of your dad you did, which was really yeah. interesting. Could yeah. you just talk us through that and maybe the software you use and kind of your approach and everything? Sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think over over the years, I've tried a bunch of different stuff, whatever was available, you know, anything that was in beta or had, you know, a 30 day trial or uh, anything that was that would that I could get through work or anything like that I would I would give a I would give a go at. So um, I started off with a mobile app called one, two, three D catch, and that went on to be called um God, I can't remember. Memento Project, Memento, and then something else, Photofly, and a bunch of other different names. It was part of the Autodesk Labs where they sort of release, you know, experimental stuff, uh, and they, they work on it. And you know, eventually it might become a product. And eventually it did. It became a um, a product called uh, Recap. I think it's called a Recap Pro now. Uh, but it basically it lets you shoot stuff on your phone. And it was all cloud-based. So once you had taken your pictures, it would down-res them by two or four times. It would send them off to the Autodesk cloud, be processed on big machines over there, and sent back to you as an email attachment. And then you could preview it in the app and stuff. So that was my my first introduction to um, photogrammetry. And one of the reasons it interested me was just the, the the quality of the output that you seem to be able to get. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm part of a two-man uh, art team in work. And you know we're always... Uh, stretched for resources we have to make stuff look good and we have to make it look good quickly and this seemed like a, a you know an area that to research that might help us with 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 uh, with our output so um i suppose yeah it's definitely one of the the, the more popular um scans that i've did it was a yeah, scan of my dad so my dad would be i think he's 80 this year and it was uh, a couple of couple of years ago i think probably two years ago and he called around uh, one evening just as the the uh, summer um uh sunshine was fading and it was just bright in the garden there was no direct sunshine but there was just sort of a, a nice ambient blue in the garden and i said would you mind sitting down for a couple of minutes uh, while i take some pictures of you and he i don't think he even really knew what was going on to be honest with you but he sat down very still he was actually a great uh, subject once he got once he was used to the camera being so close to his face he was absolutely brilliant so he sat still and i took about um I think 40 odd photos um, with my phone, which was, uh, I think it was a, a Samsung uh, Galaxy S8, which has a pretty good camera. It can shoot in RAW, um, which is important for this kind of thing. And uh, took about 45 images of his head and brought it back to see what I could get out of it. So the first step is to usually, I'll use Photoshop just to color correct the images a little bit. You want to uh, you wanna keep some contrast in each of the images, but you also want to try and remove any heavy shadowing or you know sort of ambient occlusion you want to try and get rid of that a little bit any area that's too dark uh, where the pixels can't be seen by the software is just going to register as either um a hole in the mesh or just a smooth area without detail and uh, you know the better you can sort of sort of like a seesaw uh, the better your input the less time you have to spend on cleanup um, now, I actually, I like the cleanup part of it. I like the, the sort of tactile hands-on 
sculpting and repairing that has to be done. But it, you know, it does feel like it's certainly not, you know, scanning is certainly not a magic bullet there, especially when you're scanning just handheld with a phone. There's a huge amount of cleanup required afterwards. Um, so yeah, so I'd take it in there. I would do what I could with camera raw, you know, um, removing highlights and shadows and getting something that, that, that works good and flat. And then I use, um, uh, some software called Reality Capture, which is pretty much, um, in my experience, it's it's probably the best um, 3D scanning solution out there, and it's it's pretty affordable as well. Um, it's I think it's 38 bucks a month or something like that. So even if you want to try it, you can you can grab it for a month and um, use it, and you know you get all the uh, your, there's no watermark marks on the output or anything like that. Um, so that gave me uh, a a model, a 3D model. Now it's it's not a pretty 3D model. It's not quads. Um, they are they are pretty close to equilateral triangles, I guess. But um, you're talking about 60, 60 odd million tries, I think. Uh, and then anything that's that has tendrils, anything that's furry or um, like uh, even fuzz on clothing or stubble or hair, anything like that is always problematic. So there was a the top of his uh, the top of his shirt and the top of his jumper, uh, the collar around his neck all came out, but that was just that was just garbage in, in terms of mesh. It was it was awful. So a little bit of mesh editing to um, to trim that away, and I was left with I, I think I I think I simplified it to about 15 million tries and that's just about enough to get it into 3d studio max and you don't want to edit it you don't want to be making selections in there it just it just crawls when you're doing anything like that but um it was enough to generate a um to get it in there i did my so i used another application called instant meshes these days it's slightly better you can do things quickly a lot quicker than even even in zebra say um so you can make a say a lasso selection and you can say remove these uh, so any of the blobs and you can do things like you can filter by triangle size. So if there's, if there's big spikes sticking out or something like that, it can automatically find them and reduce them. Um, it can also do things like remove T vertices and holes in the mesh, close holes. And you can do all that. And it's better to do it there because once, once it leaves that environment and you try and bring it into some other piece of software, um, it gets really heavy in terms of resources yeah. and, you yeah. know, it's, it's, nobody's got time for that. Okay. So once you've cleaned it up, then it's into max. So once it's cleaned up, it's it's into Mac. So yeah, it depends really on what your favorite software is. So I just need something that I can um, bake textures from quickly. Um, so there's an there's an application called Instant Meshes. Uh, it's free to download. It's um, it's pretty much an academic project, I think. And what it does is you can import an OBJ uh, model file, and it will automatically try to find the contours of your mesh and create a new quad mesh based on that. So um, it's I suppose it's 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 equivalent. It's similar to something like uh, Z Remesher. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's not as um, it's not as well rounded as zebra mesher. You tend to get uh, more weirdness, but for this, it was absolutely fine. And and like like uh, zebra mesher, you can you can draw guides, um, and it will give you back a nice quadded mesh. Um, and that's that's pretty much what I did with this. So that gave me back a mesh that was about uh, about ten thousand tries, I think. And it was it was it was fine for animation. I didn't really plan on doing much animation on it anyway, um, but it was fine and it was easy. Like with polygon uh, counts that low, it was easier to unwrap and to to work with generally. Um, so from there, I was able to uh, add the UVs. I was able to bake out a normal map, uh, ambient occlusion, and an albedo or diffuse map. Um, another problem with with scanning, as well as creating, you know, horribly tessellated meshes, um, the the UVs are generally generated automatically as well, and they end up looking like, um, you know, just a 
a flattened mapping or something like that. They're like all over the place. And even like I baked out 16K textures for this, uh, but most of that, I'd say at least 8K of the texture space was wasted. Um, and it was com- completely unreadable. You know, you just, you couldn't really um, tell where anything was. So rather than try and fix that on the mesh, um, we, you know, you, you, you just can't imagine trying to edit the UVs on a, on a even a 12 million polygon um, mesh. Uh, so I said, no, I'll fix all that uh, on the low poly version baked all that stuff out. And then just with a bit of, you know, photo manipulation, um, combining different utility textures, uh, you know, grayscaling the the diffuse, uh, blending over the ambient occlusion, changing the hues, painting in a little bit of um, uh, extra glossiness around the the mouth and nose. Um, that was that was pretty much the, the basis of a uh, of a good uh, low poly model. Um, so I presented it in Sketchfab then, which is, you know, the, the online um, model hosting place. And they've got a really, really good renderer. And the nice thing about it is it's WebGL and it works in almost any browser on any device. So you can show somebody on your phone. Um, one of the guys over at Sketchfab had a, like they've got this AR thing now where you can place a model in a room and walk around it. And one of the guys over, de- over there did that. Um, and they've got really nice subsurface scattering and um, uh, post-process effects as well. So I just said about then uh, trying to recreate human skin as best I could. Um, I took inspiration from a guy called James Busby. Um, he runs the uh, 1024, a sort of bespoke um, scanning uh, company. If anybody's seen Love, Death and Robots on um, Netflix, he was involved in some of the scanning for the more realistic things there and lots of Hollywood movies. And he's a really good guy. Uh, and I was inspired by some of his work. Uh, and he'd written a really good tutorial on how he'd, he'd broken it down as well. So I followed that. And by the end of it, it was, uh, yeah, it worked out It worked out uh, pretty good. It's up on Sketchfab, if, if, if anybody wants to take a look. My uh, my Sketchfab address is, um, I think it's just sketchfab.com forward slash Pete Mac, P-E-T-E-M-C. And it's yeah. the, it, it normally appears at the top of the we'll, page. So We'll put some links in the show notes for cool, people, cool. anyone who wants to check it out. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Um, and then... More recently, uh, you've kind of moved into you know, like you're talking about doing the uh, making skin, but you've you've kind of been making materials more recently, uh, again from photo scans, right? So yeah, that's it's not quite, but yes. Uh, so it's not photogrammetry, but it's called um, uh, photometric stereo, I think, or sometimes okay. um, RTI, reflective transformation imaging. And yeah. so this sort of came to my attention. It's something that um, has been used in heritage and archaeology for a while. Um, it's just, it's basically instead of having a subject and you move the camera around it and take pictures from a bunch of different angles and combine those then to make a, a 3D model. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with RTI, it's, there's a static camera and you basically move a light. So huh. the idea is that you end up with maybe, you know, six to nine images of uh, the same surface from the same point of view with uh, different lighting. So um, what the software then does is it tries to, it can see, it can work out where the lights are. So you have, you know, your typical chrome ball. I use a, a little uh, ball bearing and you just put it in the corner of the image. And then afterwards, um, you can uh, you can select that area. You can tell the software, this is the area to look for the lights. And it basically tracks the highlights on the chrome ball uh, and works out where the lights is. And then it does stuff like um, shadow cancellation for the diffuse. And it gives you back maybe, uh, well, I use I use um, a software for this called the Barty Capture. 
Um, and it's really nice. Uh, gives great results. And because it's it's not based on a mesh, it's based on the actual photographs you take. So the sharper the lens you have or the the, the higher megapixel your camera is, um, the better the detail you get. And I think that's why some of the, the recent stuff I've been doing has been uh, more successful than some of the material stuff I tried with photogrammetry. It's because it's actually, it's pixel based rather than uh, geometry based for this. And, and you're using a better camera than you're not still using your phone. Your, is it a digital camera? Is it? It is. It is. So I bought a, um, I bought an entry. It's just a, it's an entry level D, uh, DSLR actually. It's, um, it's a, it's an, it's a Nikon D3300. I think it was, uh, okay. it was pretty much the cheapest camera I could get in Argos at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bought it specifically for, um, for photogrammetry work at the time. So it's about 24 megapixel. I'm still using the same kit lens as I, as I was before, but everybody's telling me I should get, um, an art lens, like a Sigma art lens. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a, a zoom, but the pictures are, the, the, the image is supposed to be super sharp. Um, that's what a lot of the, the big boys are using, uh, in this field. Um, but it's, it's interesting. So, so yeah, the Barty capture will, will, um, process the images. Now it takes about an hour. It's quite long and it's command line only, which is a bit of a pain when you're an artist, but, uh, it's, uh, the results it's so f- from that, what you'll get is a one albedo based on your input photographs. It tries to do, you know, intelligent shadow cancellation. Um, it's, it's good. Gets you 90% of the way there. Um, uh, you get about six or seven normal maps of different heights, so or different intensities, if you like. So the first one will be like super heavy relief. It will, you usually have a big gradient going across it, and it's it's not really useful for for much. But if you if you go sort of halfway between the finest relief and the heaviest relief, um, you'll get you'll get a good normal map, and it also gives you back a height map as well. Uh, a 32-bit displacement map, which is fantastic too. So Dabarty does all that. Substance Designer also has a scan processing uh, node set, especially for this type of thing that will it will process. You have to be a little bit more metric with it in that it, it expects the um, lights to be in a specific direction. I think you usually start off with eight directions, you know, north, south, east, west, and so on. Um, the Barty gives you that little bit of extra freedom in that you can specify where the where the light is, so you don't have to be so rigorous. Talking about the lights, you're not you don't have to polarize the lights or anything. You you just set up a light and move it around, is it? So polarizing helps. Um, I do have some uh, polarizing film for the camera, um, but I'm basically I'm using like um uh, like a ten euro torch that I got on Amazon. It was actually recommended by uh, the guy who who made the Barty as well. I've been trying stuff with you know light tents and light boxes because I was worried about that shadow. I was worried about those hard shadows, but. To be honest, it actually um, it's it, it's better with it with a with a point light. So I started off like you know I've got a tripod for the camera and a, a little arm that lets it look straight down, and then I've got a tripod for the light, and then I had a tripod for something else, and it was just it was getting unwieldy. Like I like to I like to do it guerrilla style, you know, just get in and get out whatever I have in my pocket and just get back to it. Um, so something to hold the polarizer in place. I I just stopped all that. You know, you can if, for game art, even for um, for AAA game art. Um, for something as small, I mean, what you'd end up with the material stuff that I've been working on, like the, the fabric and that is, you know, you end up with a piece of uh, a texture that would cover about 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. So, you know, you've got to make it tile in order to make it worthwhile. That's a, that's another part of the process, but, um, you're not going to get the entire leg of a trousers, for example, or the entire back of a jacket from it. So, so like, I mean, 
I, I haven't found the need to polarize yet with this stuff. Um, and you can get pretty far with, with post-processing as well. You know, the quality of the of the textures gives you back are good enough that there's usually enough wiggle room in there to balance out shadow and highlights. And uh, once you've got the normal map, you can get your uh, you can get your curvature and you can get your ambient occlusion and you get the height map as well. So you're pretty much set up and ready to go with a PBR material um, just from from what you get back, which is great. So you're you're into substance now, your curvature maps and everything, are you? Um, oh yeah, well, so I use uh, not as I don't use substance as much as other people might be using it at the moment. I have looked into it for the for the scan stuff just because uh, it's it's one of the it, it's absolutely everywhere now. I think it's the most uh, frequently used uh, certainly texture tool uh, in games at the moment. Um, but uh, no, I, I just have that little bit more freedom with the Barty, uh, the Barty capture. So um, it just suits me a little bit better. Like there's actually a really good article for anybody who wants to try this stuff. Um, and it's called, I think it's called Your Smartphone is a Scanner. And it's on the algorithmic uh, site. I can give you guys a, a link to it for the for the notes. Um, and it basically, using your smartphone, how to construct a little light box. Everything is made out of cardboard and set up wow. one of these um, scans for Substance Designer. It's well worth a go. It's really good. That's yeah, no, we'll definitely link to that. That's super interesting. It's 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 really exciting how easy this stuff is getting. Um, you know, you can just kind of throw some things together and, and experiment with it and get something half decent out quite easily. It really is. It really is. Like and the the, the AI stuff that's that's happening at the moment, like um like I've I've looked at a couple of uh, up resers and uh, sharpeners, you know, that are trained on thousands, tens of thousands of images to uh, try and fill in the details, hallucinate details, they call it. Yeah. Um, now it doesn't help, unfortunately. There's been a lot of questions about photogrammetry. Oh, you know, if I have a if I have a 20 megapixel input image and I upres that to 40 megapixel, is my scan going to be better at the end? Uh, and unfortunately, it's not. It actually it introduces noise. But the sure. output of your scan, if you're interested in the textures that come off it, you know, the resulting albedo, the resulting normal map or uh, whatever it is, that it can make a difference there. It can really punch in a little bit of sharpness there, you know. Yeah, it's almost magic. like. <laughs> it's like black magic, yeah. yeah. I, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I said I understood everything that was going on. But, you know, I like, I'm, I'm quite happy to drop something, drop a folder on an XE, see a little DOS box where it says, you know, 10% done and come back in an hour and the folder is full of cool textures. That's good enough for me. (laughs) Um, Just speaking about the AI, uh, you've actually done some work with Artematics. Um, Yeah. Would you you talk us through some of that actually and and maybe uh, your opinion on kind of that whole side of automating all the boring stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, so Adam, Artematics are based in, in Dublin. Um, and I met the, the the guys who founded the company a couple of years ago now. And we just met after work and had a couple of pints and we talked about, um, they were very interested in the pain points of creating 3D art, uh, the stuff that slows you down, the stuff that um, nobody particularly likes doing, um, where what parts are tedious and could be potentially be automated and they were they had some cool examples too they were doing stuff like style transfer where you could take you know a photograph of the eiffel tower say and then a photograph of a painting by van gogh or whatever and you could trans you could make the the you could transfer the style from the van gogh painting to the photograph of the eiffel tower and make it look like it had actually been painted with brush strokes so really stuff that's you know stuff for me as an artist that's that's difficult to understand um you know it's more than just adding a filter onto something there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of um uh, there's a lot of processing that goes in behind it. So I started talking to those guys and they have been developing this sort of AI-assisted uh, creation ever since. And one area that is really beneficial to me, actually, and really interesting from um, from an art point of view is uh, seam removal. 
Um, now, uh, probably most people have done the whole Photoshop thing where, you know, you just play with the offset and you clone bits in just to make a, a texture tile. Um, but when you're dealing with a, a PBR material where you're probably going to have, you know, you could have five, six, seven textures as part of a material and you want to try and preserve the pixel to pixel relationship between each of those textures, um, you know, you either get into a whole load of recording crazy actions and playing them back and, you know, it doesn't really work that well. So to be able to do them all in one go, uh, is is very enticing, but uh, I had I looked at a bunch of pl- plugins for Photoshop, you know I think Filter Forge and a bunch of things over the years that claim to be able to tile a material uh, for you, and it's like you know when people talk about automatic unwrappers, I sort of go hmm yeah maybe, but you know you, you can't still really can't beat you know lend it out yourself, um, so I was a little bit skeptical about that stuff, but. What, what really interested me was, you know, when you're, di- when you're doing 3D scans, say you take a, a 3D scan of a particular rock, um, what you get, the, the output of that whole process is a 3D model and a texture. You get the, you get the diffuser, the albedo texture off the top. Those are the outputs. So uh, when they're raw like that, you can only ever use that diffuse texture on that model. It's because of the UVs and because of the, um, the shape and the volume of the model, it, you know, that texture belongs there. But I thought it'd be really cool to be able to scan one rock to be able to extract the textures from it. And, you know, when you've got geometry there, you can get ambient occlusion and normals and height and all that for free. Um, To be able to extract that and use it arbitrarily on another model. So from the source input of one rock, if you could end up with five rocks or maybe 10 rocks um, on the same thing, I mean, it it would be amazing, right? So um, one of the ways of doing that would be to create tiling materials from that original uh, bespoke rock and texture that came from photogrammetry. So that's something where um, Artomatics, I think that's where most of my time has been spent. So uh, what I normally do is I would um, I would take the 3D scanned mesh, uh, which would be, you know, usually I usually simplify them to under 20 million tries, depending on, on what's required. I bring it into the, the viewport and max, I load on that uh, texture, the diffuse texture that, that came from the photogrammetry, and I will just render it straight out of the viewport. So I don't necessarily do like a, a render to texture projection mapping type of thing. I'll just line it up in the viewport as best I can. And, you know, if it's an awkward shape that doesn't quite fill, say, a 4K by 4K um, texture, I'll clone it and I'll just use, try and fill in some of that empty space. You know, I'll rotate it around the second model around and try and fill that up as best I can um, and render it off. And then I will put a, a normal map material. Uh, there's a really good uh, script on script spot that basically creates material anything that gets applied anything that the material gets applied to uh, will render like a normal map and i'll render that out and that will be my normals pass and then i'll do a, a z depth pass as well and that will give me my displacement um and maybe ambient occlusion too so um that gives me four textures that i can play with um and then i can bring them into artomatics now artomatics is is node based uh, it's still an alpha at the moment. Uh, it's remarkable to watch the progress every month. There's some really, really music to your ears stuff uh, coming in the pipeline. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's super exciting. Uh, so I bring in those textures. You can um, then kill, there's a couple of different nodes. So if you want to preserve areas that you don't want to have replaced, uh, you can paint those out. You can you know uh, specify what areas you want to be filled in, and then you connect up a seam removal node, and you set you know a tolerance around the boundary, five pixels, ten pixels, just the, the wiggle room that it has to you know synthesize a new example-based content to fill it in. It's a little bit like content-aware fill in Photoshop, but it's it's much better. It's much more than that, and it works on all of your PBR textures at the same time, um, which which is a huge big deal. 
uh, and then it will fill in the seams anywhere you've painted uh, it will do uh, like a mutation so it will have a look at the surrounding pixels and it will fill it in and you know sort of nine times out of ten it's ready to rock when it comes out of artomatics you might need to do a couple of little tweaks and i would usually use photoshop for that you know just for example if there's a flower on the rock a couple of daisies growing you know and it, it shows up twice or three times just clone those out or just some quick fixes. Uh, and you've got something that you can use then on any piece of geometry. So once you're a little bit careful with the UVs, you could apply it to a sphere, you could apply it to a box, you could you know, you know, could apply it to any arbitrary piece of geometry and it, and it should work well. Um, and that has been a really, I mean, that has taken uh, work that I did casually that, you know, had huge holes in it or had areas where it was really blurred. And it's taken stuff that was basically garbage and made it usable and, you know, made it, you know, practical to actually create something that you might use in production from. And, and that to me has been like, if anything, it's made me a little bit lazier um because just just this week, uh, I, I tried to tile by hand um, a denim material and uh, like a cotton, uh, like a dishcloth material. And it, it, it's, got, it's got a checker pattern on it. And it was an absolute nightmare. And I was thinking, God, you know, five minutes in Artomatics would, would solve this. And, you know, I'd be out of here. But, you know, hours and hours and hours of work just trying to get the, the little strands and fibers to match up. It was really difficult. So I'm very excited about that. And then in, inside as well, um, I hope I'm allowed to talk about this a little bit. But there's there's an upreser built in. So um, okay. if, you're, if your textures are 2K, you can upres to 4K or 8K and now put them like that. Um, there is like... Sorry, Pete, that's using yeah, the artificial intelligence again, is it? Or? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's all about um, training. It's all about training uh, algorithms to do certain things. So um, if you have, so a, a good example of something, some training would be if you have a scene in your favorite modeling application and you render it at 4K and you save that image out, uh, and then you render it at 2K and you save that image out, and then you render it at 1K and you save that image out, and you put those three um, images into the trainer, and you say, here's what uh, this subject looks like, twice the size and four times the size. Um, you put enough of those in, enough good quality images in, it can sort of learn um, you know, how to sort of fill in the gaps, the missing, the missing detail. Uh, and that's a lot of what happens. Now, you know, there's that whole saying as well, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out from, from VFX. And that's still true. You, you, you can't, there's still no make good art button, <laughs> but um, it certainly can save your ass. And it, 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 it just saves so much time. Like I said, it makes stuff that would be otherwise be garbage um, viable. And it also means that you can be a little less um, careful when you're shooting the stuff originally, like specifically photogrammetry and um, the RTI stuff, it gives you a little bit more wiggle room at the end because you can, you know, just vary in the, with a brush stroke and a little bit of calculation. You can just, um, you know, patch over those problem areas. Yeah, yeah. And it, I guess the, and it's the, what they advertise as well is that like it, it takes it's doing all the boring stuff so that you can spend more time on the actual interesting parts. That's just it. Like, uh, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, like I said, I've become a bit spoiled by it because uh, I've been on the alpha for a while now and I mainly go to it for the seam removal, but there's a ton of other uh, really useful um, nodes in there that you can plug in that I haven't just, I haven't had to be exposed to yet uh, for image editing and for material editing and, um, uh, texture mutation, being able to take samples from a particular set of textures and generate a whole new material, a whole new um, set of textures from it procedurally uh, using example-based content. Um, so if you take, you know, if you have one material, uh, stony, uh, mucky ground, you can have 10 textures in, in you know, from, from that one input. I mean, it, it really is, it's, it's, 
it's hard to fathom um, the impact that that it's going to have when all this stuff is is available and is become more more widely used. I think I think it's going to really open up things. It's going to do wonders for budgets. You know, and you'll be able to get quite a lot of mileage from you know even one well scanned asset or one well taken texture or uh, you know whatever your asset might be. Yeah, a serious game changer. Big time, yeah. Uh, so once you have all of your texture information and you've removed the seams and everything, um, what are you using to render render out your materials and, and make it look pretty? Oh yeah, okay. So I, I mean, I've uh, tried a lot of renderers over the years. I was had to learn Mental Ray really when I when I worked in brown bag films and you know all of its peculiarities and uh, all of its foibles and uh, th- that still would have been uh, my go-to renderer um, up until the last couple of years. But because so much of my my day job is 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 games, it's it's real time art. Um, I I bought a uh, I bought a, an engine or a renderer, I guess, called Marmoset Toolbag. Um, it's a standalone application. Um, it's a real-time renderer, um, but it can do some. It's got some amazing tricks uh, under the hood. So, um, you know, you, you don't get. It does have a, a sort of global illumination system built in based on voxels, uh, and I would use that in most of my renderers. And you, you know, it's still it's still performance. You can still move the cameras, the lights in real time. There's no uh, progressive rendering or you know path tracing or anything like that. It's 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 a game engine renderer that does a handful of things very well. It has a really good material system, like an Uber material, an Uber shader in there. Um, mm. It has fantastic lighting. So there's like about I don't know. 16 different lighting presets uh, built in all based on hdr mm-hmm. um and i was an alpha tester on uh on 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 three as well um and what it is is it's a it's a real-time renderer and material editor uh it's not it doesn't do um offline rendering it's like a game engine um it's got one viewport uh it's got very familiar in, uh, interface very simple to use um and it's got some really good effects now the the type of quality that you get in Toolbag would probably be better than uh, you know Unreal Four or something like that in terms right. of real time rendering, but it's more specific than than UE Four. You probably wouldn't try and render a landscape with thousands of trees and and stuff like that. But for showing off one particular object, um, it's really good. So it's perfect for materials or or, or standalone models. Um, so it's got like sixteen different or about sixteen different built in lighting uh, presets, all based on HDR probes. So you've got a couple of good indoor probes, a couple of good outdoor probes, and then you have a global illumination system based on voxels as well. So um, it, it sort of translate your, translates your model into voxels and it uses that to work out where the GI would be and then blends it back over your original model. Um, it also has a bunch of really cool uh, post effects. You know, you've got screen space, ambient occlusion, there's sharpening, there's a really good depth of field filter, um, all sorts of uh, exposure and tone mapping, that's all built in there as well. Um, and it has become like very much an indispensable part of my workflow for for everything i mean if you're going to say you're using unity or using ue4 as your game engine or even if you're using v-ray uh, as your as your renderer um there's still no quicker way of proving out materials than dropping them into toolbag uh, hot loads fbx's and obj's it supports alembic um, it supports Photoshop PSDs, and it's super quick. Once once you make the save, you go back to your your other monitor or whatever, and the, it updates in real time. Um, so yeah, it, I, 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 it's 
could be a hard sell to try and convince something somebody to say oh you know i'm making these this i'm making this physical material it's going to be used in v-ray i'm going to bring it into v-ray and test and you say well hold on there there's another piece of software you could introduce to your pipeline um i could understand how that would be a hard sell but it has honestly become uh, my go-to app uh, in everything yeah for, for anything it's just so fast uh, it, it's just so fast to iterate and change and test. Like, I mean, you've got you've got HDR lighting in one click. Don't like it? Click something else. Uh, if you want to add direct lights into the scene with like really high res shadows, um, just click on the um, HDR probe and it will create a light on that point in 3D in your scene. It's just a, a really useful. So yeah, it's become one of my favorite tools, and that's where I render. Uh, most of the stuff on my blog, unless otherwise I use a little bit of uh, V-Ray too. Um, but for most of the stuff that I'm posting these days, like I, I, I call it game art. So although it, you know, you could use it, the textures are usually, the materials are usually high res enough that you can, you can stick them in, you know, a shader in Arnold and they'd look fine. But um, I, I, I try and qualify my stuff as being game art. So it's rendered in, in a, in a game engine. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other software that you're using that kind of might be sort of going under the radar? Um, yeah, I don't know if people are using Nald. Uh, I think it's I think it's pronounced Nald, K N A L D. Uh, I don't know if you guys had come across this, but it's um it's a GPU based baker, and um it's a little bit like Crazy Bump or um what materializer or something like that in that it can take you can input a height map a normal map or a photograph and it will try and give you a bunch of textures based on what the input is so the best input to load would be a height map or a normal map because it actually has a lot of surface information in there um so what i would normally do is once i have a normal map even if i have a 32-bit um exor displacement map that's come straight out of max or maya or wherever it may be and um, that is absolutely faithful to the model uh, sometimes i'll just discard that and i'll bring the normal map into nold and in like five seconds you've got a uh you've got a, a extremely good fit for your normal map in terms of a height map and it will do stuff like you know the problem with 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 uh, generating uh, displacement maps from scans is that sometimes you have a really high contrast uh, in terms of height from pixel to pixel so you can end up with you know a big spike or a big shelf being displaced across your your model and by using the normal map as input now it's not quite as accurate but it does a remarkable job at recreating the height map it smooths that out it sort of normalizes the height a little bit if you know what i mean so uh, sort of i'd say you know a good percentage of the time i'll end up using a height map generated in all and it, it, it's got copy and paste so you can open you can open your your normal map in Photoshop. You can control an A, control and C, copy to the clipboard, paste it into nulls, get your textures and paste them back into Photoshop. So it's a super snappy, super quick way of doing it. Um, and it also has a fully a full three uh, D baker as well, where you can load in a, a a high res mesh and a low res mesh, and you know bake out curvature just like Painter or just like Designer. But it's super fast. Yeah, it's 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 small. It does what it does really well. And again. Um, it might be another app to consider in the pipeline, but it does what it does so well and so quickly that I don't really mind it. You know that kind of way. It's, is it expensive? Is it is it once off? Or? No, it's it's not expensive at all. It's a once off perpetual license. I, you know, I I don't have the figures in front of me, but you're talking about I'd say a hundred bucks maybe. Yeah. Well, we can put a, a link in the show notes. That's interesting. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, that's that's and I say null to people. And uh, first of all, I'm not sure if I'm not, if I'm pronouncing it right. It might be knald. I don't know, but it's it feels like it should be null. Yeah, um, that makes more sense. So th- that's one of the that's one of the ones I use quite a lot. Um, 
I use 3D Studio Max as my main my main go to for for modeling work or wrangling or, or anything like that. Um, I use a bit of Substance, a bit of Substance Painter, a bit of Substance Designer. Um, that's all fairly standard, I guess. Um, Marvelous Designer uh, for for clothing. Sometimes my work. Uh, my day job, I guess, requires uh, some character stuff or some clothing work, and I'd go to Marvelous Designer for that. It's also useful. Like I've been doing a lot of fabrics lately uh, in scanning, so if you want to just, you know, drape a drape a, a, a towel on a on a sphere, you can do that really quickly. Um, Reality Capture is the photogrammetry software I use, um, and then I've haven't really had time to look at Quixel Mixer, uh, but I will um make time uh, it's it's just haven't had the right uh, project to work on it yet um and then there's substance alchemist which is in uh, open beta at the moment beta, yeah yeah what do you think of the you mentioned quick so what do you think of their mega scans they're they're awesome i mean um they are really they're such high quality um do you think that's another game changer or I think, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, some of the testimonials on their website, you know, they were used in the live action Jungle Book film and, and you know, you can sort of say now, oh, that's mega scans. You know, they just have an incredibly realistic look about them. Um, and, and fair play to them. The, you know, sort of the, the fun of this for me is making my own stuff, if you know what I mean. So although I use libraries heavily uh, in work uh, for speed purposes, when it comes to making my own stuff, you know, I'd rather go out and you know, scan some nettles myself. Then, yeah, then, yeah you know. have fun with it. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, it's a great learning process. By you learn you learn an awful lot about modeling and texturing from from photogrammetry and from from RTI as well. I mean, you you can you can scan these things, you can bring them home, and you can open them, and you can you know, normal maps are very legible. You know, you can quite clearly see what's going on, and you can learn a lot about how things are made up uh, by doing it. Um, yeah, Quixel uh, is great, and again, another another time saver. Um, the, there's a really good section on textures.com uh, now as well that has um, scanned materials and, and they're usually great. The great thing about Quixel is that you know when you're using uh, reflectance transformation imaging, RTI or photogrammetry, um, so the output of photogrammetry is a really good mesh and a good albedo texture or a good diffuse texture, you know, with highlights and shadows in it. Um, with RTI, you get um, you get albedo, you get normals, and you get height. And from those, you can get ambient occlusion. But what you don't get is roughness or translucency. You don't get either of those. So that's still, for me, it's still it's a mixture of eyeballing and trying to locate, uh, you know, values from PBR charts on the web that I'll, you know, blend together based on whatever looks right. And the nice thing about Marmoset then is that it doesn't punish you uh, when you want to change a lighting setup. It's it's one button will completely change the lighting, and you can you can evaluate your uh, material in 16 different lighting situations in you know 16 seconds which is which is fantastic so um it, it sort of it rewards experimentation and tweaking like that and everything is on sliders and you know yeah. it's, it's really easy to change kind of stuff. Lets, lets you have fun with it and get out of your way exactly and that's and that's half the fun of it but what, what what you do get with quixel is um a more accurate roughness and translucency map so a really important part of foliage shading is the sort of backscattering that goes on on the backs of leaves and you get that from them and it just works so well out of the box um that's the that's the stuff that 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 really impresses me about that you know so pete we're, we're um we're nearly out of time but just before we finish up have you got any advice for um artists up and coming or even people in the industry maybe thinking about moving around sure yeah i mean something that i always try and drill into so i lecture uh, part-time down in uh, in pulse college yeah. on, on the game art course yeah. um and something i always say to the students down there is that skills are transferable um and that's something that i learned when uh, i moved to 
from 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 games, middleware and games as a character artist and eventually a generalist into TV work um, was that, you know, the grunt of the work was the same. The applications I was using were the same. The output was different, uh, you know, real time output versus something pre canned. And, and, and both of those have their advantages and disadvantages. But I always try and say to, um, you know, guys on, 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 and girls on the on the game course, um, you know, don't be if you love art if you love animation not necessarily the fact that you're working in games then you know a career in, in broadcast animation is definitely open to you so i mean you know people say they want to work in games people might want to work in an animation but like likewise to animators who are coming off a, an animation course that might not have touched on games at all you know those skills are very desirable and very transferable into games the the, the grunt work everyday work is the same it's just the output um, that's different. And they have, you know, different considerations, you know, um, for example, um, uh, what would one be? So with game animation, you would end up doing a lot more cycles. You would end up doing a lot more uh, loopable um, uh, cycles. Um, and for broadcast animation, you might animate a character coming in from the left of camera, stands there, does something, and then walks off again. So more once-off animations, I guess, would be would be one difference. Um, like Likewise, you don't have to worry about what a character looks like or what an animation looks like from every angle when you're working in broadcast animation. Um, once you get your shot nailed, your shot is nailed, whereas um, in, uh, you know, if you're in a third-person um, shooter, say, for example, in a game, when the, uh, the player can put the camera anywhere, you've got to sort of make sure you cover all the angles, so to speak. Um, so that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing, and, and we talked about this at one of the 3D meetups, actually, there was an entire meetup devoted yeah, to it, was, it was just about um, uh, portfolios and having a, a good, strong online presence somewhere that people can go to see your work, uh, you know, a link that you can send somebody that has a gallery. And there's, you know, there's really, there's very little excuse. Like you can get it and you can have an amazing looking portfolio for free on ArtStation, which has a whole social network thing built into mm -hmm. it. And you can be approached for business. You can even sell stuff. Uh, on art station now um and everybody who's you know serious about being an artist should should definitely have a, a presence on art station yeah um and then just uh yeah social media um there's a there's a quote now i'm not really sure who said this quote the first time i heard it it was from a boxer promoter called frank warren i think it was in the i don't know back in the 90s or something but i think it might have been pt barnum uh, from the circus guy from the greatest showman yeah, yeah. who said um a terrible thing happens when you don't promote yeah. nothing so in other words if you don't put yourself out there if you don't get you know if you don't get your art on front of people even in a gentle way even in a sort of take it or leave it type of way nobody's going to know about you, you know? Yeah, yeah so um that's why it's just so important like a, a twitter account or even an instagram dare i say it where you just you post a little update of your work in progresses or your finished art and just just put it out there and start sharing it um there's no better way to get your name onto onto people's lips and it's, it's not a bad thing if you're an artist if people know you by your work first and you know in person second yeah, you know then you can turn up to the 3d meetup as well <laughs> definitely 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 go to the 3d meetup if there's one thing that you go to get to the 3d meetup because they're awesome thanks pete <laughs> uh, i think we'll, we'll finish up there um but it's been a really really interesting chatting to you pete uh, thanks so much for coming on thank you very much for having me it's been it's been fun That was Pete McNally. Thanks for listening to the 3D Meetup podcast. As always, we'll have links in the show notes. 
We're still finding our feet with this podcast and we'd really appreciate some feedback from our listeners. If you have any suggestions for how we can improve the show or recommendations for future guests, please get in touch at 3dmeetupdublin at gmail.com. You can join us on meetup.com, you can follow us on social media and check out our website 3dmeetupdublin.ie. I hope you enjoy the show and I'll see you at the next meetup.